You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm Chad Dundas. That's Ben Folks. We meet here every single week to chop up all the prominent, newsworthy, and hilarious happenings in the world of mixed martial arts. Ben, you've returned from the wilderness. True. I'm back. I'm back, you, Chad. You missed the second half of last week on a, on a camping trip. And so now here we are on this episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast to try to wrap up a whole bunch of stuff, really, because we had a Wednesday night UFC over there on ESPN+. Plus. We had a Saturday night UFC, I believe, on ESPN and ESPN+. Plus. So we missed a whole gang of fights while you were gone. I hope you had fun. I hope you enjoyed yourself out there in the wild. I feel like I detect a little bitterness in your voice right now. I'm not bitter. I'm just saying, you know, in this game, when you miss a few days, we got a lot of stuff to get to, a lot of get back that we have to get after here. I know what this is. This is jealousy. You see how tan and rested I look? You think, man, that camping trip would have been fun. Out there under the stars, standing around a campfire. Ben just looks so happy. It looks like he came I mean, back. All his cares are gone. I'm still like burdened spent, with cares. You look like you spent three or four days taste, chasing your children around the forest. That's what you look like. I know how it goes out there in the woods yeah. with the kids and the sleeping and it doesn't happen. It's no picnic, my friend. It's no picnic. Well, that's where you're wrong. It was a literal picnic. Several days of picnicking is what it was. So deal with it. Then I had to come back, got caught up on some fights. Uh, now I need someone to remind me. I can't find it on my own somehow. Remember somebody was telling us about a website where it uses viewer ratings to tell you which fights from a card that you missed you should go back and watch. I do remember that, but I do not remember the name. I don't remember the name either, except I remember going to the website and being like, this is a name that I'm not going to remember. And I really could have used it coming back on a Monday morning trying to go back through some fights. And uh, it's lost to me. So somebody will have to remind me. But the thing is, I, I had a lot of chance to think about this afterwards because you know how when you miss a live sporting event and if you've got a DVR or something and you're thinking to yourself, okay, if I can just avoid spoilers, if I can go in there fresh, then I could just enjoy it at my leisure, fast forward through the commercials, everything will be all right. But I feel like living in the MMA bubble, it is kind of impossible to avoid spoilers. Yeah, you're not going to be able to get on social media at all. If, uh, I'm not going to be able to open my email. The UFC is emailing me results. Like, you can't do it. Sometimes I only realize that a UFC event has started when I start to get those emails yeah. from UFC PR. Like, I, my phone starts to send me these alerts and I start to get all these emails and I think, oh, fights are happening. There's fights happening somewhere in the world. Some manner of pugilistic island or atoll is currently hosting mixed martial arts action somewhere in the world. And I need to figure out where to watch it and what, what's going on. Now, people who are watching the uh, video version of this podcast will note, no doubt, my colorful barrette in my hair. The problem when we logged on today from our separate locations in the same city is that we looked almost identical, like yeah. kind of comedically so. Like we were yeah. both wearing black t-shirts 
We have almost the same exact eyeglasses. We're both rocking the summer pandemic haircut. And we're both just a couple of white guys in Montana. So already, it's like we were 95% the same. So I had to go add a dash of color to the wardrobe. I figured maybe the t-shirt wasn't going to do it. I only got one pair of glasses. I decided to raid my, uh, my children's closet for some accessories. What do you no, think? No, you look good. You look great. Okay. Look like a You're not just saying that. I no, don't look ridiculous. No, no, you look great. I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't tell you you looked good if you didn't look good. You should know that about me by now. So, Ben, here's what we're going to do this time around since we missed these two UFC events. Wednesday night, of course, you had the uh, fight night event over there in Abu Dhabi headlined by Calvin Cater's unanimous decision win over Dan Ige. And then Saturday night, you had uh, another event also at the Flash Forum in Abu Dhabi, headlined by the heartbreaking loss of Joseph Benavidez against Davison Figueredo for the vacant men's flyweight championship. And of course, in the co-main, Jack Hermanson and Kelvin Gastelum going at it for some semblance of 185-pound contendership. Jack Hermanson emerges with the heel hook submission victory over Kelvin Gastelum in just under a minute and 20 seconds. So we got a lot to talk about here. Uh, We're going to end up doing a... uh, all questions considered episode of the co-main event podcast this week. We're going to try to work through this mail that we got from listeners. And uh, with any time that is left over near the end, we might pick up a few odds and ends. Plus go ahead and look ahead to uh, Bobby Knuckles, AKA Robert Whitaker's middleweight fight against Darren Till coming up here uh, this Saturday. That's July 26th. I believe that is the, the wrap-up, that's the wrap for uh, for Fight Island, the last event at the Flash Forum in Abu Dhabi, United Arab Emirates, that will uh, get us back to Vegas after that. I think we're going we're going home. After. Unless the pandemic rages on, Dana White has left the door open to the possibility that Fight Island might just become a, like a regular UFC locale for the rest of the year. Or who knows? Who knows how long? You want to hear a, uh, a weird Fight Island thing that oh, has happened to, to me? I would love to. So I get contacted out of the blue kind of by some PR guy about do I want to talk to somebody at the Abu Dhabi government about how they have gone about making sure the UFC can come there to Yaz Island, do the Fight Island stuff, the testing, all the stuff that has gone into doing this. And I'm like, yeah, okay. Uh, Not exactly a story I was seeking out, but if you get somebody from the government who can comment on the record about it, like I definitely have some questions about how all that's working and uh, yeah, we could do something there. And uh, he's stringing me along for like a couple of weeks about doing this interview. You know, obviously people with the WWE government, Jad, they're very busy, uh, don't have all day to sit around and yak with sports writers on the phone. Finally, you know, he gets a, a, a date where like, okay, we can do it. I think it was supposed to be today. In fact, Monday, Monday for me anyway. And then he, you know, I go, okay, we agreed at the time, all that stuff. And then I get an email from him. He's like, yeah, it turns out he's too busy. He won't be able to do it. But sorry, thanks for your interest. Like, no, let's try to reschedule some other time. Making me think maybe these people finally read like my Twitter or something and realized that maybe I was going to ask the Abu Dhabi government representative some questions that he might rather not answer. Uh, yeah. But, I, love, I love the PR pitch that, uh, then that they, they can't ultimately put together. Yeah. You well, know? I mean – I didn't ask you. I didn't go to you and be like, right. you got to get me exactly. somebody from the Abu Dhabi government. Like, I got to get this story, man. Like, I'm a hot on. It's like you came to me with this story pitch. I agreed to it. We set up the whole thing. And then finally, you're just like, oh, actually, we're not going to do it. And I'm just like, well, this has been an emotional roller coaster for you and I both, hasn't it? 
Like we, we just went on this journey together to no end. Yeah. And uh, great, good, good talking to you, I guess. I don't know. I don't the know. same exact thing happened to me with uh, Dustin Poirier before the uh, Habib Nurmagomedov fight because I was supposed to do a feature about Poirier for The Athletic and then this uh, you know PR company that I had never heard of before, but I guess they worked with Poirier, uh, contacted me to ask me if I wanted to interview Dustin and I was like, oh yeah, I do actually because you know, I've got this feature coming up that I'm, supposed to, that I'm supposed to do. So I sent them an email back and then like two days later, they emailed back to say like, sorry, he's not doing any more email, or interviews before the fight. And I was like, man, you asked me <laughs> less than 48 hours ago if I wanted to do this. And so uh, I ended up just having to, to text the guy myself. And then it was fine. We set it all up and it worked perfectly after that. It was just the PR agency was just unable to deliver on the thing that they asked me if I wanted to do in the first place. See, I think as long as we're working on CME spinoff businesses, like the one where fighters have to Venmo us 40 bucks for us to assess their ideas, why don't we have us the CME PR agency? We will reach out with promise of access to people who we don't even know. Like we'll just, like we'll just be like, would you like to, to talk to Nicolas Cage? And then when people are like, yeah, I did, I did an interview with Nicolas Cage. And then we'll wait two weeks and then we'll be like, sorry, we couldn't get him. Yeah. Yeah. And no, I mean, step that would three profit. On with, with a lot of know. the people working in the industry today. So there, there you go. go. All right, let's get started here. We're going to be doing all questions considered this week. First question this week comes to us from the Corgi King okay. who writes, Benavidez versus Figueredo was uncomfortable and heartbreaking to watch. Joe was physically overmatched by the bigger, faster, stronger Figueredo. Joe mounted little to no offense of his own, and the fight was never really competitive. I know that everyone will praise Joe for his toughness, but watching this bloody, watching his bloody body go limp with his eyes rolled back into his head was just upsetting. The worst is knowing that even if he'd won the fight, he still isn't making the kind of money that he should have, should have been making and now has a 20-hour flight back home to think about his loss. I've never been a huge Benavidez fan, but I definitely feel for the guy. I don't have a question. Okay, that's nice. Uh, I'm mostly just bummed out after what I saw. MMA is a cruel sport where the old are fed to the young. Please discourse. All right, I will give, Ben, I will give the Corgi King this. Joe Benavidez is a good guy, a smart guy, an articulate guy that a lot of people in our business like to talk to. He's got a lot of uh, support and, and, and friends, really, like in the MMA media. And so I think for a lot of people tuning in here to the rematch against Figueredo, we all kind of uh, looked at this fight and thought that this was probably Benavidez's last best chance to get a UFC title. And so to see him get worked in this fashion, I think really was depressing and heartbreaking for a lot of people. And you are one of the guys that uh, you know knows Benavidez a little bit a little bit better than most. Maybe you've talked to him on occasion, like. This was a tough one. This was a rough yeah. one to take, I think, for a lot of people inside the bubble. Yeah, it was. And in a way, it makes me feel bad for Figueredo, which I realized I shouldn't feel too bad for the guy. He just became the UFC flyweight champion. So, you know, things are going pretty well for him by comparison. But it did feel like because so many of us feel positively toward Joseph Benavidez, just because we've known him for years. And, you know, like you said, like he, it's not like people have just chosen him and there's just a bunch of joseph benavides homers running around it's that they get to know him and they really like him because of like he's a very likable guy he's just like a kind thoughtful good person and so in a way that feels unfair to davison figurator who 
seems like he's a pretty good dude too. You know, I don't know him nearly as well as I know Joseph Benavidez or anything, but so it, but it's like you go into this fight with a guy who is beloved by so much of the MMA media and the MMA fans just as like a person. And they kind of don't even want to give you your credit as a fighter that you deserve. Like you have to beat the guy twice to finally claim the belt. And when you do beat him the second time, everybody is looking at it and going like, our big takeaway is that we're sad. Like congrats to you and all, but we feel sad. And that's, that's kind of tough for him. Uh, But I mean, I agree with a lot of what the Corgi King is saying here because obviously when I watched the fight, by the time I watched it, I already knew the outcome, but I was still surprised at just how one-sided it was uh, because, you know, the first fight was pretty back and forth and a lot of like frantic action and everything. And then when they had that clash of heads, that's definitely seemed to change what was going on in the fight there. This one, Figueredo drops him in like, a, like within the first minute of the fight, that right hand just kind of like loops it right over the top, catches him kind of behind the ear and puts him down. And then it just got worse. And you could see that Joseph Benavides, he's still in it. Like he's still, he, 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 his desire to fight has not diminished at all. Even when he's getting tagged left and right, like he's still charging in, still trying to bring the fight to Davis and Figueroa and was still just getting tagged, you know, getting caught over and over again in that first round and then finally getting choked out. And you're just like, it reminds you, we've talked about it before, but I think the the thing that somebody from the New York times wrote after one of the Floyd Mayweather's fights where they were like, there is no moral lesson in the outcome of a prize fight. Like just because somebody is a good person or they would win if this were the movie version of it, it doesn't really mean anything. Like yeah. the fight's still going to be what the fight's going to be. And it's true. Just like physically, he looked outmatched here against Davis and Figueroa. You got the sense that they could fight five more times and it's probably going the same way. Yeah. Two very definitive endings here in favor of Davis and Figueroa, the new 125-pound champion. I agree with you. I was not prepared for it to be quite this one-sided. Uh, and on one hand, I, on one hand, I feel like the Corgi King has, has correctly uh, prognosticated what, what we're going to talk about here, because I do think in some ways you got to praise Joseph Benavidez's toughness. But on the other hand, I think, you know, the, the, the first order of business is giving credit to Davis and Figueredo here, who just came out uh, against the obvious fan favorite and against a guy that I think a lot of people viewed as, as the heir apparent you know, 125 pound champion as soon as, as Henry Cejudo was done with that belt. But, uh, Davison Figueredo has, has defeated him definitively twice now. And this one was just a whipping. In fact, uh, one of the most remarkable things about this fight, I think is just how long Joseph Benavidez managed to last. I think we got a question coming up about that in a second, but like, it was kind of the most remarkable thing about this fight is that it looked like it was going to be over in a matter of seconds and, and Benavidez managed to like string it out until almost the end of the first round, uh, you know, making it like the, his, his survival story somewhat noteworthy here. Uh, on the other hand, though, I also want to mention, and I feel like this has happened in a few recent UFC fights that this was just a matchup where two dudes look like they're not in the same weight class, even yeah. though they both weighed in at the same uh, obviously weighed in at the same weight at 125 pounds for the flyweight limit. But somehow at five foot five, Davison Figueredo managed to look like a goddamn giant out there against Joseph Benavidez. And every time he hit him, you could just tell that there was a, a huge disparity in the two guys' power. Like Benavidez could hit Figueredo once, two, maybe even three times, and it didn't even really seem to phase him. And it seemed like every time Figueredo landed a punch, Joe B ended up on his backside down on the canvas. Yeah, but he also, it wasn't just 
like size and strength, he also he had a really good command of the distance in that one. And you could see that that was one of the problems that Joseph Benavides was trying to solve against him, both in the previous fight and this one. The last one, you could say that in trying to solve that problem, he ended up like rushing kind of head forward into a lot of these striking exchanges. And then you had a clash of heads after that, which maybe isn't surprising. But even in this one, you could see like Davison Figueredo was really calm in those counters because he had the distance measured up there very, very well. He knew exactly where he wanted to be and where he was safe. Uh, and so like it was in addition to just being like physically bigger, he also, he put together a, a good technical fight for as long as it lasted. Davis and Figueredo now 8-1 and one overall in the UFC. He has one decision loss to Juicier Formiga uh, in March of last year. Now on a four-fight win streak, of course, the most recent two here uh, against Joseph Benavidez. And previous to that, uh, Alexander Pantoja and Tim Elliott. So he's putting together quite the resume there, now capped uh, by being the, the new and uh, – undisputed UFC flyweight champion. Let's take this question from John Tiller, who writes, what was happening when Figueredo had the choke locked in on Benavidez the first few times? It looked multiple times as though it was going to be over, but Joe somehow managed to escape. What is that? Toughness or just poor technique from Figueredo? Yeah, you could see it seemed like the first time that Figueredo tried to lock on that choke after dropping Joe with a right hand early on. And it seemed like it was up a little high, like on the jaw. And there, Benavidez's reaction was to push on the elbow and try to like push it up higher because you feel like you don't have it under the chin. And you know you can still submit someone and damage someone by putting that pressure on their jaw. I mean, we've seen Demi and Maya do it, like just squeeze the blood right out of your face. But he was trying to like release that pressure upward because he felt like it wasn't where it needed to be to begin with. But then after that, he did get right under the chin, and Benavidez still escaped. But then. The problem that he was facing there was he was try- like at first you're trying to deal with the most immediate threat like the choke right you got the arm around your neck that's not good but then when he would release that a little bit then he'd start thinking about trying to remove the hooks which would then give you the opportunity to, like to try to re get that choke like get it under his chin and he got it a couple times but then Joseph Benavides was just really good at one hanging on long enough to buy himself a little bit of time in the choke but then also attacking the hand and pulling that hand down. Uh, and I was really impressed because there was a moment after that where like, all I knew was that Joseph Benavides got choked out unconscious in the first round. That, that, that was the extent of the spoilers that I heard. And so when he gets dropped and he gets that choke put on him, and especially when it gets like reapplied under the chin, I was like, well, here it is. Like this has got to be the finish. And I was surprised to see him not only fight out of that, but then he had a moment where like they kind of get up against the cage and you can see him collecting himself and you're like, yeah. This is impressive. Like he looks like mentally, he's not freaking out. He's still in this fight, gets back up to his feet and everything. But then the next time, I think by that time when he had had the choke finally latched on him there toward the end of the first, he'd been dropped three times by punches, hit with some bad elbows. At that point, you know, your, your th- ability to, to think and keep up with everything that's happened is probably a step or two behind where it was before. And then he, he just got that choke on and it, it, it seemed like, he was still thinking about the defense he wanted to work, but ran out of time. Yeah. I, uh, yeah, I don't necessarily think it was like a mark against either guy either. I think that like, if anything, it was kind of a compliment to both these guys. You got to see both like the, the tenacity and, and tech, technical acumen of, of Davis and Figueredo. And you got to see like the survival skills and the, uh, the, the ability to, to play defense in that situation, a very 
a very rough situation for anybody, frankly. You got to see Joseph Benavidez like really do some good stuff for a while, just like, uh, you know, got in that position a couple of times during that round and gave Davis and Figueredo, a guy who clearly has some, some deadly submission skills, too much time to work. I think that like from the outside looking in occasionally onlookers, uh, maybe, uh, underestimate both ends of the equation. Like they, I think they underestimate how hard it is to choke out a guy like Joe Benavidez with, you know, a straightforward rear naked choke. Uh, you think back to the early days, the pioneer days of MMA, uh, when nobody really knew how to defend those kind of things and people would get tapped out right and left, obviously by the Gracies and whoever with, with fairly, uh, rudimentary, but effective jujitsu techniques. Now that you, now that you fast forward 25 years or whatever, and everybody knows their way around the defense and everybody knows what they're doing. Like it's really, really hard sometimes to tap out a veteran like Joseph Benavidez, who's been in the sport 15 years and is going on 35 fights here, uh, you know, with, with a choke like that. I think it's one of the reasons why you see fewer and fewer submissions at the highest level of MMA over time. So I think, you know, some people look at an exchange like that and they underestimate how difficult it is to actually secure the tap from a professional fighter of that, of that caliber. Guys who are just used to being in those terrible positions, used to the feeling of, uh, you know, being choked, used to uh, being able to find ways to survive. And I think we also underestimate how fucking deadly it is to, to let a guy like Davison Figueredo get around your neck. Like yeah. anyone else, anyone else uh, with, with any less experience or any less training would be done like dinner in the matter, matter of seconds. So like I look at that exchange and I think like, you know, it sucks for Joseph Benavides to lose that way. And obviously it was ugly to see him get choked unconscious. But at the same time, like you kind of got to see uh, positive traits out of everybody in that situation that, you know, not only Figueredo's finishing ability, but Benavides's ability to, to fend it off for as long as he did. Yeah, and when you say that, like one of the reasons we see fewer submissions, and in those high level fights, it does tend to be this kind of situation that we see those submissions in, which is that somebody being hurt by strikes first yeah. and having their defenses and their just their ability to kind of keep up with everything that's going on slowed down or altered somewhat, and then it's too late. All right, here's a question from Kip Pennington who writes So, when all is said and done, where will Team Alpha Male rank? Among all-time best gyms, a lot of title shots, not so many wins. Discourse, please. Uh, now, I don't know if we are prepared to offer up definitive top 10 lists of all-time great MMA gyms, but I do think this is an interesting question. Team Alpha Male, a gym that obviously uh, is known for fighters in the lighter weight classes, uh, was clearly a favorite of uh, in UFC circles for a long time. And, you know, the, the point is well made here. Their guys ended up getting a lot of, a lot of title shots or seemingly a lot of title shots. And then, you know, not really bringing a lot of the gold home. Uh, well, Benavides is kind there. of a, he's like a former team alpha male guy now, right? I mean, like he's mas- mainly in Vegas there. Like, I think he, he might go and train with those guys sometimes, but he's mainly a Vegas guy these days. Yeah. And before this fight, I believe he was announced as uh Fighting out of New Mexico, not not Greg Jackson's gym, but but fighting well, out of someplace in New Mexico. He's from New Mexico, so I don't, I don't know if that's what they're going for there. But I think he's been doing a lot of work mainly in Vegas um, most recently. But it is a good question, especially because it seemed like at least from the moment that we're currently looking at the sport from Team Alpha Male seemed like it it had a time, like it had a moment where it had a lot of those guys. 
But it also seems like now that we're getting a little more distance on what that time was, you can't separate the ups and the downs of the gym with some of the turnover that went on there and like coaching positions and just who was in charge, who's leading the gym. Like basically, are who's the people owning and making money from the gym, but then who was supposed to be doing the day-to-day work of getting the team whipped into shape and it seemed like there was there were some hard feelings there about uh, changes in coaching position, people then also like leaving the gym, serious riffs and stuff like that with people like Dwayne Ludwig and TJ Dillashaw and all that kind of stuff. And that to me, like I, I think that that's, we should maybe interpret that as a sign like, it is difficult to keep together a gym like that because especially when they – the thing that was special about them was that they had so many good guys in just a few key divisions. Like you didn't hear about a whole lot of heavyweights coming out of Team Alpha Male. It was the lighter guys, but they had so many good ones at the same time. And already right there, you've got a lot of personalities that can clash. Everybody's trying to kind of eat at the same trough in many ways. And it's difficult to keep one of those gyms together like that. Like it may be – it should make us appreciate more of the few gyms that have managed to be consistently good over and over and over again. And not just because I remember people would make this comment about extreme couture back in the day that you have to be able to tell the difference between what is a good gym and what is a gym that has a lot of good people at it. Like, did you just come up with like one key person who was able to attract a lot of talent around them for a short limited period of time, but they couldn't hold it together or did you actually like build a good gym like out of nowhere? What now do you think is the future of this flyweight division with Davidson Figueredo as the champion? Uh, you know, he's he's calling out uh, Henry Cejudo like everyone is. He actually mentioned uh, Demetrius Johnson also. Uh, I think we got a question coming up about that as well. Uh, but you know, it's it's, it's Davis and Figueredo, clearly a, a skilled guy, but maybe not the the highest Q factor, maybe not the highest uh, visibility, even among 125 pounders. Is this a is this a, a a disadvantageous term? I guess you would say for the flyweight division to have Davis and Figueredo now as champion, who, as you said, seems like a nice guy, showed up before this fight looking like a million bucks in his street clothes, but uh, is maybe a guy no one's ever heard of outside of the you know the hardest of the hardcore fans yeah i mean i'll be interested to see where it goes from here because you, you look at the rankings and you see like kind of what the top five looks like right now davison figueredo has already fought a lot of those people and but you do have like some interesting people below that that maybe are on their way up and so i think that you could have some fun and some action in that division i also wonder a part of me goes maybe what we would really like is if flyweight had a lot of turnover at the top. As you look all over the place in the UFC right now, and you see dominant champion after dominant champion, like a whole lot of people right now, probably more so than at any other time I can recall, where you look at them and you go, I don't, I think that these people could hold on to these belts for a good long while, both in the men's and women's divisions. And maybe we get bored of that a little bit. And especially if maybe there's no one lightning rod of a figure to be right there at the top maybe the best thing for a weight class like that to give help give it the respect it deserves and get people as interested as the action itself suggests they should be is if you see a whole lot of give and take up there, the, the belt moving around a little bit. I don't know. Yeah. I've never really known a transient championship to, to 
generate a lot of interest. Usually it's the opposite. Usually it's the dominant champions that do bring people in. But at the same time, you know, uh, I guess we're willing to try anything at flyweight at this point. Like uh, maybe some turnover at the top wouldn't be the worst thing. I, I don't know. Uh, ben, I saw this being bandied about uh, online. I think uh, maybe DC and Ariel Helwani talked about it on on that show earlier today. If this is is the the end of Joseph Benavides's championship aspirations in the UFC, does he become the best UFC fighter to never hold a championship? I don't. I mean, there's some good names on that list that would accompany him. Agreed that he's he's on the list. Uh, somebody like Yoel Romero, though, like yeah, that's somebody where I think you look at his career and go, okay, like he's definitely on that list too. Uh, I don't know. I mean, especially if we're cu- limiting it to UFC fighter to never win a UFC belt, things like that, then uh, it's a little bit more of a select conversation. But uh, yeah. The thing that makes it read a little bit differently to me is like, look how many chances he had. Like he had a whole lot of opportunities to get it and beat guys who then would later become champions, but just couldn't actually win those fights himself. And that that stings, you know. Like I think that that's got to hurt a little bit. And it, it does seem like this kind of closes the book on it. Like it's yeah. unlikely he'll ever get another chance at it. Yeah. Uh Somebody over on Facebook a while back and invited me to join some manner of MMA group. And okay. I did not join. But Shocking. For, for, but for whatever reason, I still see the updates from that group. Uh, and I saw that the group had had put up the post or, or reposted, shared, whatever it is over on Facebook, the Megan O'Levy post-fight uh, post where she and Joseph Benavides are sitting on the couch together. And she's like, you're the best person I've ever known. Everyone who uh, who comes in contact with you leaves a better person just because of how you treat them and what a wonderful guy you are. I love you to the moon, whatever it said, et cetera, et cetera. I, <laughs> I saw it. I was like, oh, that's nice. I scrolled down. The first comment on Facebook that I saw was somebody saying, he even sits like a bitch. <laughs> what? I can't understand why you wouldn't join this Facebook group, Chad. I was they, just they like, sound like such a delightful group of people to be around. <laughs> Just wasting our lives out here on social media. Wow. Wow. Next, next question this week. Moving on. <laughs> Why here. Next, you tell me that? Well, you make you, – you just wanted me to feel worse about the state of the world? You thought I was feeling too optimistic about my fellow human beings? I just wanted you to share in the feeling of, of not having a lot of hope for humanity, mankind. I, wanted, I didn't want to be the sole bearer of that. I wanted you to share it with me. So you felt like these are already such optimistic, bright, sunny times. Let me, <laughs> yeah, no, I, I didn't want you to get too high, okay? okay? I didn't want you to get too high over there with your camping trip and your suntan and I'm well-rested and all this other stuff. I wanted to be like, let me drag you back down into the gutter, folks, down into the ditch where the rest of us are slogging around in the mud and the spit and the blood. Drag me down into the darkness where Chad Dundas lives full time. That's right. The darkness where I see random Facebook comments. God. Okay, what's next? This question comes to us from Dave Lister. He writes, can we get some love for yanking and cranking Jack Hermanson? That that one just doesn't work. I want it to work. 
I do, but that one just doesn't work. It's a little bit of a slant rhyme, for sure. It's not even uh, a slant rhyme. It makes a mockery of slant rhymes. Not only did he go out there and put Gastelum on a three-fight skid, he then put on his matchmaker hat and told us what the next year at middleweight looks like. Do you guys agree with his plans, him versus the winner of Whitaker Till, and then the winner of Adesanya Costa versus Cannoneer, then the winners of those fights? Uh, or do you see anyone else forcing themselves into the picture? And this feels weird to say. It's been a long time since I thought about Jared Cannonier. What's Jared Cannonier up to? I know. I feel like that is like the uh, it's the it's the shaky part of this equation. And I when I was watching Jack Hermanson lay it out for us on TV when he was being interviewed by John Anik after this win over over Kelvin Gastelum, that was the part where I was like, uh, well, I don't know. Like I love Jared Cannonier. Don't get me wrong. Out Stones here, of the Earth channeling the powers of stones of the earth and whatnot. Mm -hmm. Uh, But if anyone is getting screwed in the title picture concerning these guys, it's probably Jared Cannonier, isn't it? Yeah. It just, it has that feel like he's the guy who would be most easily overlooked by the powers that be, even if he deserves better. But yeah, last time we saw him September, last September where he, when he beat Yankin and, Cranston, Jack Hermanson, we'll work on it, beat Jack Hermanson. Uh, and then it was like, okay, the middleweight division, like I kind of agree with the breakdown of the middleweight division, like who you have just kind of in the conversation. You could mix and match them in a bunch of different ways there. Right. Uh, I also think, though, that just looking ahead to what comes after Israel Adesanya versus Paulo Costa is already looking too far. Fair enough. There's just yeah. too many variables at play here. So, like, let's get first of all, let's get to that one intact. Then let's have the actual fight and get through to the other side, and then let's go ahead and prognosticate all we want about who's next and how it's going to shake out and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, UFC 253, I believe, September the 19th, middleweight championship bout between Israel Adesanya and Paulo Costa announced as the uh, potential main event there. Uh, also rumored Habib Nurmagomedov versus Justin Gaethje, so you might you might have a double championship bill there if everything comes to fruition. Uh, what about singing and dancing Jack Hermanson here, though? Before we move on, clearly he just got beat by Jared Cannonier uh, in September of last year, second round TKO. So maybe that's why uh, Hermanson wants to give the nod to Cannonier to to have him go ahead and fight for the title first. But this performance against Kelvin Gastelum a guy who I believe you would agree is a tough out for anybody in this, you know, in either division, really, despite the fact uh, now that he is on the heels of three straight losses. This is an impressive performance from Jack Hermanson going out there, not only getting the submission, but getting the heel hook. Like I was out here a few minutes ago talking about the rear naked choke and the decline of the submission at the highest level of MMA. A heel hook is some, that's some shit right there. That's nothing to sneeze at. Well, yeah, and you got to imagine that when you're scouting Jack Hermanson and you're thinking about you know what you might have to worry about there, you know we know about like his weird guillotine choke. You're probably going to spend a lot of time in training camp working on defense to the weird guillotine choke, and then the guy comes out there and heel hooks you, and you're kind of going like, well, shit. I you know 
Kelvin Gasol probably feeling pretty good about himself when he got that reversal early on to end up in the top position. And then the next thing you know, that's what just ends up getting you in trouble. He gets that heel. And it's just like, I don't know if it was that Kelvin Gasolum didn't take the threat seriously enough, soon enough. Like, didn't think, like, it's like, okay, this guy's working for a heel hook from the bottom just because he's trying to grab for anything. Didn't seem like he was really setting up a serious defense, like he was concerned about it all. And then the next thing you know, it's too late. I will say, though, I love when a guy like Jack Hermanson gets a heel hook submission early on and celebrates as if like he is drinking out of the skull of his enemy, like something about that contrast heel hook tap, and then jumping up and in the empty arena and just screaming like a madman. I absolutely love it. He seems like a very reasonable fellow, except for the five or 10 seconds after he immediately wins a mixed martial arts fight. That it's not the time to give him any bad news. Like if you accidentally hit Jack Hermanson's car in the parking lot, don't choose that specific window of time to tell him. Yeah, just wait a couple minutes. He'll, yeah. he'll get it back under control. Well, but the heel hook must be one of his moves, right? Because he goes for this thing twice from that position. Like goes for it the first time, doesn't quite get it. He's right back on it like Davison Figueredo on a rear naked choke until he does get like a pretty impressive and quick heel hook tap out here from Kelvin Gaslam. So I would assume even if you got the – the Hermanson choke scouted. He's got other tricks in his bag. This heel hook thing seemed like that must be one of his go-to submissions. I don't. I don't think he's one. I was just glancing at his record, though. I don't think he has any other heel hook submission finishes. Maybe then that though puts it in the minds of opponents. Like if he can come out with a heel hook out of nowhere, maybe he's got he's got a whole toolbox full of weird submissions and stuff that you haven't seen. With variations on the variations and whatnot. And uh, you never know what you're going to ha- face against Primpton and Prance and Jack Manson. A lot of people don't know this, but whenever there is a leg lock submission in the UFC, somewhere, no matter where it is, he's probably outside uh, his home in Reno working in the garden. Ken Shamrock looks up at the sky and says, hmm, heel hook. Then he goes back to, you know, getting his radishes ready for harvest or whatever yeah. he's doing. He feels it on the wind. When somebody gets a heel right. submission in the UFC. That's right. Next question is, uh, this week comes for us from Tracy Dickinson, who writes, I was looking very forward to Paul Felder cornering Jared Gordon while still in his suit from commentating since it was done as an exception and as a quick break of the circumstances. Uh, did I get to witness this epic, the epicness of that moment? No. No, I did not because it seems like Reebok made him put on one of their boring-ass black shirts over his suit while cornering. Am I more upset about this than I should be? I feel like Felder cornering Gordon uh, in his commentating suit and potentially finishing his duties for the night with a little blood spattered on said suit made for a much more interesting story than barely acknowledging uh, that he was doing double duty. Am I alone in this? No, um, it, it, it would have been cool to see Paul Felder out there uh, cornering Jared Gordon in his suit. Like I'm, I'm fully on board with that. I do think like it feels like Paul Felder got his due daps, got his propers for stepping in here to to help corner this man. I don't think it was like swept under the rug. Maybe this is just a purely a, a sartorial question, purely about the you know what he was allowed to wear out there at at cage side. But but even that, even just from a sartorial perspective, Chad, I completely agree that it just makes no sense that, okay, if he's going to be in the corner, he's got to put on the Reebok shit. Because it is a, a cooler, more unique, interesting moment if you let him out there in the suit. Also just easier for everybody involved because he can just go right from one to the other there. 
and it can like visually kind of stand out to some extent and we can all enjoy the weirdness of this kind of moment that may never come again once we get through like pandemic UFC. And it reminded me kind of of the thing like when Dominic Reyes wanted to wear the Kobe Bryant jersey or something, you know, and we wouldn't let it's just like this like strict following of all the Reebok rules and everything. And like what was he wearing a Nike suit? You know, like why can't we was a suit made by Under Armour? Why can't we just let the guy be out there in a suit? It, it that stuff makes no sense to me. It seems like people like I don't know who is in charge of making that final decision if that one makes it all the way up to Dana White or like if they just have this kind of blanket position on those things that you just shut it down right away and like hey everybody has to wear the Reebok because we've let one person slide. The next thing you know we got a problem. I don't know, but it seems like here are some opportunities to have some weird kind of fun that arises naturally. Like it arose completely organically and you can just let it be what it is. And it'll be like an interesting kind of side note. And we have to find some way to make it just a little bit less fun. Yeah. I mean, especially in this circumstances, right? Yeah. Where you feel like you could make an exception. Like, yeah, your, your corner men are all supposed to be in their Reebok garb at all times, except here we have this very singular and unique situation where, uh, you know, Paul Felder has to step in to corner Jared Gordon after his actual cornerman test positive for COVID-19 and, and so it cannot be there. And and so it feels like we could make an exception here. I, I'll tell you what I did like, though. I liked that we did get the uh, like the tracking shot video of Paul Felder going yeah. backstage and going into the locker room and giving uh, Jared Gordon that hug and kind of being like, let's go, let's go get this. I like that. I like that they did stuff like that, that we got to see. Uh, you know, some kind of behind the scenes stuff and they played it up a little bit, but I agree with you. It seems like uh, we didn't need to, to be quite so rigid about the exclusive apparel deal, which is, as we know, soon to lapse and Reebok isn't even going to be in the sport too much longer. So yeah, uh, for the, we could, it seems like we could have made an exception here. Although how about this? Do you think about this? Maybe it was Paul Felder. Maybe Paul Felder was like, I need to have my corner man gear on if I'm going to be doing the corner man thing. Because it's it's you know I'm switching roles. It's like a it's like a, it's like an over the top when you when you got the the ball cap on. Front yeah, where you got to turn it around. You turn it around. For business and it's like time. A switch. It's like a switch. You're ready for for your arm wrestling. Maybe it's the same thing with Paul Felder. Maybe he's got to get into his uh, his polyester Reebok stuff in order to to hand out proper corner commands. I mean, I'm willing to acknowledge that's a possibility, but I don't think even you believe it. No, I'm just, I'm just throwing, I'm just spitballing, trying things out, seeing what's the sticks. only thing that could have made that tracking shot thing better is if we see at some point as Paul Felder was winding his way to the back, him going through like the kitchen of the Copacabana, like in Goodfellas, and like just you know handing the waiter a hundred dollars and everything, just following around, like just throw me one uh, absurdist moment in there, um, and I'm totally on board. That's what we need. Next question this week comes to us from Kevin Schuler, who writes, Wednesday night card that ends sometime around 12.30 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Saturday night card that ends at 10.15 Eastern Standard Time. Not really sure what they were thinking with this one. Yeah. Some of this stuff you can't totally plan for, Ben, although on uh, the main card of UFC on ESPN 13, that would be the Wednesday night show headlined by Calvin Cater versus Dan Ige. You go five back to back to back to back to back unanimous decision finishes in a row. That, my friend, 
is a long goddamn card right there. Yeah, but I also, I mean, I do think it is possible to take some of that into account when you realize you have a card in the middle of the week. Like, make it a shorter card, start it earlier in the day. I, I mean, maybe you're thinking, like, we don't want to start too early in the day when people are still at work, but uh, there's a lot more people working from home right now than there have been at other times. But also, like, you can adjust these cards, like, for length and, and things like that to fit it in better on a weeknight. And, like, Honestly, I think that that would not be a terrible idea if you're going to have some Wednesday night uh, like UFC events. I know this is just we're trying to catch up and make up for lost time uh, when we're very, very briefly shut down for the pandemic. But like, I wouldn't hate the idea of like similar to what they do with the Contender Series, where it's like you got a fight card on a Wednesday night, and you know you do it from the Apex or something, and you got five or six fights on there, like a more digestible amount of MMA. Not a terrible idea. Yeah. Uh, did you watch any of this Calvin Cater Dan Ek fight? I did. You've seen this now. Well, yeah. Well, uh, I mean, I was I was in town for that one. Oh, you hadn't left yet. I left on Thursday. So you squeezed this in the the night before heading out to, to camping. I did squeeze it in. Uh, Dan Ek here. Did, or I'm sorry, Calvin Cater with the unanimous decision win over Dan Ek uh, seems to have at least punched his ticket to something approaching immediate featherweight title contention here now, having won four of his last five fights. Yeah, I mean, you know that the dude Zabit is going to be sitting back and being like, hey, you can't, I like, I beat this guy. Like, he can't right, pass me up one. for it. That's the four and one. That's the one in four and one in his yeah. last five fights. And the informal asterisk that goes with that is everybody could see Zabit was slowing down a little bit. That one had been a three-rounder instead of a five-rounder. And under Stockton rules, you might think that Calvin Cater would have won that one just because it looked like that's where the action was trending by the time the fight ended. And I honestly think, like, I Calvin Cater seems better now than he was even then. Even though it wasn't that long ago. But it's just like, you watch him, uh, you know, like his last, you know, that fight with Der- Jeremy Stevens, obviously, and then this one with Dan Ige, he just seems so smooth and so confident with his striking right now, but also like capable of making really good and necessary in-fight adjustments pretty quickly. And I really, I would love to see like a, a Calvin Cater and Zabit rematch at some point down the road uh, over five rounds. I think that would be super yeah. interesting. Cater has that kind of snowball style where he starts a little bit slow. He's taking your measure. And then his, when, he's, when he figures you out, he starts to get off a little bit. And then as soon as he is feeling confident uh, and, and he, really has the, he really has things kicked into high gear, it becomes this like overwhelming force that just picks up momentum and picks up momentum and seems like a particularly uncomfortable experience to be on the losing end of. Like he's, he's, he, unless he hits you with one of those crazy flying knees, he might not knock you out right away, but he's just going to pick away at you. Yeah. for 25 damn minutes and probably leave you, you know, with some bumps and bruises the next day. Yeah. Well, and it just seems like you're going to wind up in some of those exchanges where you just feel like you're being chipped away at like over time. And that skill wise, things are not adding up in your favor. This question comes to us from Peter Cuss, who writes, do you feel that when it comes to negotiating pay, it benefits fighters to have another job on the side? I'm thinking of Shane Carwin's engineering job or Stipe Miocic's firefighter gig or GDR being a police officer. Basically, they have other irons in the fire. 
and you have to pay them uh, their approximate value or the UFC is leaving money on the table if someone like Stipe retires from the sport in his athletic prime. Is this true or only true for a narrow subset like heavyweight fighters in the top five discourse? Now this, we are looking on the bright side here. (laughs) If our takeaway from top UFC level MMA athletes having to have a second job is well that's good for their negotiations. We that's yeah. that's a little bit too sunny day that I'm willing to get about this particular circumstance because I would bet you know some of these people work out of choice, maybe Miocic being one of them, you know, maybe he would keep his firefighter job, I don't know. But my guess is if you asked 9 out of 10 UFC fighters who who do indeed have second jobs, would you like to keep your second job or would you just fight full time if you could support yourself doing it? I'm certain that almost all of them would say, yeah, man, I would fight full time. I I would not continue working at Gary's Tire Barn or whatever I'm doing. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think Peter is right to say to suggest that this is probably only true or at least way more true for a narrow subset like heavyweight fighters in the top five. And we've seen just in general that heavyweights seem to get paid more by the UFC. They're a little bit more prized. There's fewer of them to choose from, it seems, fewer good ones. And somebody like... Shane Carwin, who had a really quick rise to the top and was knocking people out left and right. And then the UFC might care enough to be like, hey, why don't you quit that job and we'll pay you more money or something like that. I think for a lot of those other people, if they go into negotiations being like, you know what, like if you don't give me the deal I want, I'll just walk away and and I don't need this because I got a job at the IT department over here. And the UFC would be like, okay, good luck with that. We hope that that works out for you. We'll just hold on to your contract uh, in perpetuity. But yeah, I mean, it's also true that like it's kind of the exception to the rule when somebody is like Shane Carwin and has an engineering job, like an actual career outside of it. And most of the side jobs that fighters have tend to be more like stopgap measure so that you don't starve or get evicted. Like it's not so much stuff where it's like, I have this whole other full-time career that I can do until I'm 65. And then also I'm a pro fighter on top of that. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe, you know, Peter Cuss might be right that in in some of those limited instances, maybe it does take the pressure off uh, to know that you have that other income coming in. And so that, you know, you don't need to jump on whatever the first offer is for, for fights. And maybe you can negotiate a little more and, and get, get what you feel like you're worth. But at the same time, I don't think too many people are thinking about it that way. I don't think, you know, your average UFC fighter is is thinking that they have a lot of leverage because they got that nine to five old Navy money coming in. You know, they don't have to, I don't think they feel like that gives them strength. Maybe the fighter of the future will be like, I should, you know, become a CPA so that it will help my negotiating strategy with the UFC. What about that? It's possible. I hope that we, uh, I kind of hope we evolve in the other direction, but you know, whatever. <laughs> Next question this week comes to us from Dak Wasson, who writes MMA Twitter is full of people complaining about poor judging and refereeing. In fact, it's almost taken for granted that judging is an abomination. Is it possible that maybe, just maybe, the judges and refs actually know what they're doing and it's the unwashed hoi polloi eating hot dogs on the couch? that don't really know what they're talking about. Just the unwashed hoi polloi, huh? I mean, well, this is this is borderline 
co-main event podcast unverified listener mail rant of the week territory here. I believe, if I'm not mistaken, that Dak also submitted a similar question for my mailbag column that uh, goes up this week. But uh, I think it had a little more – I think there were two aspects to it. But this one definitely – I think that there is something to this. I mean, but I would separate them into two different things. Like the poor refereeing. We've talked before about what just an unfathomably difficult job it is to be an MMA referee. And we can always point out things where, okay, they could have done that better, or we might like to see them actually punish fouls uh, sooner than they usually do. Like it takes a lot to get a referee to take away a point or something like that. But I, I do think that it's really easy to notice when a referee screws up. And because it's the nature of the sport makes it so that as soon as you move in and, and have any intervention in the fight at all, you have irrevocably changed it regardless of what you do next. And that just doesn't exist in most other sports. But as for judging, like I still think there are ways judging could be improved, but I do think that too many people don't have the space like, in their heads to separate between what's a real robbery where you just, it's, completely unthinkable that anybody could have seen it this way and what's a close fight that really could have gone either way and kind of like almost any time you see like a main event where it's like 48 47 in either direction if it's that close where all the scores pretty much say 48 47 if it's that close it's telling you that it's probably close enough where reasonable people can disagree on who will but like the especially he mentions mma twitter not known as a place with a lot of space for nuance in the arguments. Right, so it does right. tend to leap immediately to like, this is a horrible robbery and MMA judging is corrupt and incompetent and whatever. Right. And I feel like a lot of times there's a lot of, of emotion, you know, simmering underneath those, those debates in certain cases. And then, you know, there are some cases where, uh, where, we, where people misunderstand the judging criteria. There are some cases where from the outside looking in, exactly what a referee is up to may not be, totally uh, apparent to us, but the referee is actually out there, you know, by the letter of the law doing the right thing. I think there are a lot of, you know, ins and outs, a lot of factors that go into these, these decisions. And, you know, for the most part, I think like referees are pretty competent judges. Like we say, like the best thing you can do as a judge is if nobody fucking knows who you are, that means that you're probably doing, doing the right thing. Most of the time we have no, I no, we have no reason to figure out who you are. Because yeah. you are just doing a competent job out there. Don't make uh, us want to look we, into you. You know, don't make us right, want to look you right. up on the internet. Yeah, don't make us find your Facebook page. Uh, <laughs> I saw we talked last week about Sean Sheehan over at Severe MMA and his one man crusade to get people to understand the judging criteria. I saw he put out what can only be described as a plea today on his Twitter that was basically like, if you're going to talk about judging on your on your show, whatever it is, uh, I'm available. You can have me on. I will come on and and uh, and we can talk about it. Uh, it says, here's a call to everyone in MMA. If you want to talk about judging, hit me up. I'll do your podcast. I'll answer your questions in private if you want. Media, fighters, anyone, email and bio. The answers to all the questions you hear asked over and over about judging, they exist. So Sheehan, getting a little desperate over there for people to to understand the rules and regulations of the sport is what it sounds like to me. Okay. Question one, aren't a bunch of these judges just dorks who came in from boxing or karate school or something? Question two, that's a, that how sounds correct like are they? Very or extremely? 
those questions sound like the questions he would want you to ask in private. Okay. The email is in the bio. Okay. Folks. It's more of a slide into the DMs kind of question, you think? That's right. All right. We'll do this last question from Roy or- Orland, and then we'll talk a little bit about Whitaker versus Till coming up. Uh, he writes, I mean, were they really expecting a company that has made commercials with Colin Kaepernick to get itself entangled with a company so identified with Dana White? where the independent contractors are as likely to spew alt-right conspiracy theories as they are to thank their opponent, why would a Nike or Adidas ever do that to themselves? I believe he is uh, talking about Venom coming in as the new exclusive apparel sponsor of the UFC. Of course, we knew for a couple weeks prior to the announcement after Dana White's appearance on the Schmo Zone that uh, – he had successfully narrowed it down for us between three companies. I believe it was Nike, Under Armour, and Venom. And then the, the, the decision was made or the announcement was made a couple of weeks later that it's going to be Venom coming in to take over for Reebok, making the UFC's fight gear and corner gear and other exclusive apparel. I think like this is a good After question. After framing it that way on the Schmo Zone, by the way. Whoa. Right. Nike, Under Armour, and Venom, they all seem so similar. I can't understand. Uh, but I mean – I'm interested in the aspect of this question that makes us wonder, and I think this is a good question, how much would a company like Nike look at the whole picture here? Or and how much of it would just be, if you could convince them that Reebok made a bunch of money selling the gear, or that they could do a slightly better job and make even more money off of selling the gear... Would that outweigh any concerns they might have about Dana White himself or about MMA fighters in general or even about like the way the MMA fans responded, especially initially to Reebok? Like, how much damage would you potentially do to your brand by just getting into, involved in this space and within the structure of this deal, which seems like it's already kind of set up for people to hate you? It's way harder to get into that and launch the whole thing and have people respond positively. And it, it's way easier to just screw up some little thing and have people respond negatively because they're already kind of primed in that direction. They already, You already would be associating yourself with this pay structure program that seems like it's not fair to the athletes. Like when we did those uh, fighter surveys, you know, a lot of fighters are just saying like they didn't feel like both people in the UFC and people outside the UFC saying they didn't think the Reebok deal was fair to fighters. How much do you think a company like Nike takes that aspect of it into account as opposed to just the strict bottom line dollars and cents of the, the entire operation? It's a really good question that I don't necessarily know the answer to. I can, I mean, I think we can say that from the outside looking in, it doesn't appear that it troubles ESPN all that much. Like True. ESPN up to this point seems happy enough with its deal with the UFC. Uh, and in fact, like when I spoke to a UFC executive early in the Reebok, or I'm sorry, in the UFC ESPN deal for the story I did about the athletic, I was struck at the glowing terms that he talked about the UFC. And like some of that clearly is PR and you know that that's the stuff people are going to say when they're just getting into a deal and it's the honeymoon period and everybody loves each other, et cetera, et cetera. But it wasn't just sort of like, yeah, we think this is good for us. It was like, we are overjoyed to be partnering with a company that we feel shares all of these common goals and beliefs with us. And even at the time, I was like, really? You think that well, about the UFC? 
but that's a different talking about a uh, live sports rights like like broadcast rights and sports apparel sponsorship kind of program they're just such a different landscape especially for somebody like ESPN where one of the things the UFC depended on when they were heading in to renegotiate or, you know to to negotiate a new sports like broadcast rights deal was looking around at the other major sports and how long their deals lasted and kind of realizing we are going to come onto the the free the, onto the market here at a time when there are not a lot of other sports rights up for grabs. And so anybody who's looking to add something, maybe something that would even aid their new streaming platform that they want to get people to sign up for, they would be way more interested in scooping up something new like the UFC just because there are no, if you're looking to add new stuff, there's just not a whole lot of new stuff to choose from. And so I could see how for ESPN, they look at it, and for them, it definitely outweighs any concerns about, hey, every once in a while, you're going to get a call from like the governor of California or something, and you're going to have to then call Dana White and tell him to stand down, in his words. Like, that, that might happen every once in a while, or fighters will get out there and say stuff that uh, maybe is not exactly reflecting on you the way you'd like. But also, I think that they realize, like, okay, that's going to blow back on the UFC way before it ever blows back on ESPN as the broadcast partner. We just show you the fights. And also, they when you talk about commitment to the same goals, that, those goals being churning out content, hours and hours and hours of new content. Like, that's what's important to ESPN running a new streaming service, especially it's become important during the pandemic when everything else is shut down. I can see how they still look at the UFC and see it that way. Somebody else who is an apparel partner and who saw already what Reebok went through through this entire process might reasonably take a different stand at the end. And we can't say for sure what happened with any negotiations about a new apparel partner or a new deal or anything like that. But I feel like it's pretty easy to read between the lines in that the new apparel partner is Venom. Yeah. Isn't it? If it, it, it feels like if there was any Nike money on the table or any Under Armour money on the table or any Adidas money on the table, that the UFC would have taken that deal. Maybe I'm wrong, but like that's just my opinion looking at the, this announcement that Venom, uh, to take nothing away from them as an athletic brand or a, 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 an apparel sponsor that's a little bit more clued in to maybe the needs of the MMA fighter, et cetera, et cetera. But at the same time, considering the direction that the UFC has moved the last several years, considering how it seems to want the mainstream to view its brand at this point, uh, I have a feeling that if it could have had the swoosh out there in the cage instead of the snake, it would have taken the swoosh. So my, my guess is that maybe there wasn't a ton of interest from the big shoe companies, from the big athletic apparel companies in signing on with the UFC. Again, could be wrong, don't know anything about it, but the fact that we ended up with Venom leads me to believe that, uh, let's just say we didn't say no to Nike, Under Armour, Adidas, et cetera, et cetera, before we worked our way down to a, a slightly lesser known company. You're saying you don't think that there was a scenario in which Dana White had to pick up the phone and call Phil Nike at home and be like, you know, I appreciate your offer. It was very generous. And uh, we, we respect everything that your company has done, Mr. Nike. But after a lot of thought, we, we're going with Venom. We feel like they yeah. understand the space a little better. You know what? Just let Keith happen. Under Armour down easy because he takes it hard, man. He does. He does. He's, a, he's an emotional guy. 
takes it hard. All right, let's turn the page a little bit here. We only got short time left, but let's talk for a couple minutes about uh, UFC on ESPN 14 coming up Saturday night, July the 26th. As I said, the last uh, Flash Forum event over there in Abu Dhabi, at least in this in, in, uh, incarnation of Fight Island. Wait, well, ben, when we're done with Fight Island, are they going to just take all the stuff down? Like, are they going to strip away the infrastructure, take down the whatever uh, yurt or uh, Quonset hut that we built over there for the Flash Forum? Are we going to take all that stuff down or are we going to leave it up in case we need it? Is you it going to be kind of like, you know, I'd rather have it and not need it than need it and not have it? This is one of the questions that I was planning to ask this guy from the Abu Dhabi government. But, okay. Uh, <laughs> so I don't have a good answer for you. I don't know. I mean, it does seem like their usual practice is to, to take it down, right? And then just like, hey, we can just we can make people build it again if we need it. Yeah. No, I, that's – yeah. They, they, uh, they don't seem to have a hard time paying the laborers, let's just say, over there. At, uh, let's just say on Yaz Island to put up whatever it is the UFC needs. All right, but let's let's specifically talk about uh, this fight card. This is a good one. This is a good fight card. You got Robert Whitaker, Darren Till up top at middleweight, uh, Mauricio Shogun Hua against Antonio Rogerio Nogueira in the co-main at, at light heavyweight in a matchup certain to make all of us sad. Heavyweight fight, Fabricio Verdum against the debuting Alexander Gustafson at that new weight. Carla Esparza versus Marina Rodriguez. Uh, Paul Craig versus uh, Gary Antiglov. Uh, did you do you see what this name is? Yeah, and it, there's no Gary in it at all. Okay, well, I decided to go with Gary because Gad Z Murad. <laughs> Gary A. You want to yep. just do that? Yep. Josh Antigulev. Uh Then you got Alex Oliveira, Peter Sabata, Kazmat Chaimiev, and Reese McKee also. On this uh, on this main card, that's a seven fight main card. If you're scoring Ooh. at home, yes, it is. So hopefully, we're going to kick this thing off about three o'clock in the afternoon. You don't see those very often. Seven fight main card. Um, now, I was really surprised. I went and checked out the odds for this. Just looking around, looking around for a deal. If you had twenty bucks, you never wanted to see again. Just first of all, have you looked at the odds? I have not. Just throw out a guess for me that what do you think the odds are on Lusty Gussie versus the Go Horse? Oh, um, I thought you were going to ask me about the main event. That, okay, uh, we'll get there. I'm going to guess it's a pick'em. You know, I would have thought something at least close to that. Your man, Lusty Gusty, going thick. off. Thick. Thick, thick Alex Gustafson going off at a greater than three to one favorite. Really? You can get Fabricio Verdum at plus 289 from Sportbet. Wow. How do you feel um, about that? I, I, you know, I, I, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago that Verdum is kind of, he's not necessarily the guy that he was back in the days that he was champion. But, I mean, if you have $20, you never want to see again. You know I love an underdog bet. You know I'm, you know, for the entertainment pers- purposes only, I might yeah. think about throwing down on, uh, on Fab Verdum. What if you, you threw him in a parlay with Shogun Hua going off at minus 185, mix in a couple prelim action just to keep yourself interested all night long? I don't know. I mean, especially I could, I could see how people after Fabrizio Verdum's last fight 
where he looked, let's say, not terribly inspired. Yeah. Like not not like his heart was on fire with desire for this sport maybe anymore. But they could have just been a bad night. You never know. But then you have Alexander Gustafson moving to heavyweight. You know, also just like this is the comeback fight. And going to show up in a new division. I don't know. I could see how that turns out to be bad. And yeah. I could also see how even if Alexander Gustafson does win here, if you beat Fabricio Verdum in your heavyweight debut, is that one of those situations where it's maybe the worst thing to happen to you? Because then it bolts you into some, some very dangerous heavyweight fights after that. You might wind up on Francis Ngannou's Twitter timeline. No, don't do that. Don't do that. You don't want to be there. You don't no. want those problems. Uh, what about the main event here, Ben? Robert Whitaker, Darren Till, your guy, uh, Bob Nux, returns after his loss at UFC 243 to Israel Adesanya back in October 2019. This, you know, after competing just once in 2018 and just once in 2019, and now here we are halfway through 2020, this feels like one Robert Whitaker needs to win to me. Uh, going up against Darren Till. Yeah. Do you do you agree with that? I do, but I also feel like more than anyone else, even Alexander Gustafson, more than anyone else on this card, Bobby Knuckles brings a whole lot of question marks into this with him. And just yeah. of all different types. Like you wonder how he is just physically, like his his overall health. He's dealt with some issues there. Also, like you go back and you look at his last three fights, Israel Adesanya and then the two with Yoel Romero. And even though he won two out of three of those, all of those fights took something out of him physically. Like those are all tough, tough fights that really could take a toll. And they might even be the kind of fights where we look back afterwards and go, you know what? He was never the same after this extremely difficult stretch. But then there's also the other side where he's talked about you know, feeling mentally just like burnout out with the sport and the, the level of commitment and the intensity of training that goes with it just every single day. That he stepped away from that, got himself a little bit of a refresh, but you also still wonder like exactly where he is psychologically going into this fight. And then also he knows he knows what this fight is, that this is the one where people are looking at you right after you lost the title and they're putting you up against a guy who is a contender in a lower division who's come up and uh, trying to make a run as a middleweight. And they're, they're going to use this fight to try to tell, have we seen the best of Robert Whitaker already? Is he on like the downside now? Or did he just get beat by a really good champion who had his number that night and had a better game plan and executed it better and that he's about to put together a string of wins and be right back in there? Like That's what they're going to look at this fight as. And so there's a whole lot of pressure there for him to, to make sure you don't go from the guy who was on top of the world to losing two straight. Yeah. Uh, short of Kamara Usman versus Jorge Masvidal, a matchup that we all know just came together at the last possible moment, Robert Whitaker against Darren Till is probably my most anticipated fight of the uh, Fight Island run of the hashtag Fight Island series. So I'm looking forward to this one. I can't wait to see it Saturday night, as we said, over there on ESPN. If you guys want to watch that, we'll be back a week from today to talk about it on another episode of The Proper. For those of you who have checked out the Patreon page, of course, we got fun stuff happening all this week over there, patreon.com slash co-main event. Wednesday, we will be back for the live chat and a new episode of uh, our TV podcast where we're watching Kingdom, the MMA drama that ran on the Audience Network and DirecTV from 2014 to 2017. I have to say, it's been pretty fun so far. 
It has looking been forward to, uh, to watching another couple episodes of Kingdom and talking about it on Wednesday. And then on Friday, we'll be back for the Power Hour leading up to this Saturday fight card with Robert Whitaker versus Darren Till in the main event. As for right now, though. Wait, 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 wait. wait. Well, Before no, go we go. ahead. Yeah. Yeah. I have a, no, I, I have want a, to cut you off. I have a trivia question for you. We're going to end this week on a trivia question. <sighs> oh, Jesus. Okay. All right. I recently did the story on Jeremy Horn, right? Went to back, talked to Jeremy Horn about his career. He fought at this thing. You remember Pat Militich had this kickboxing match uh, this past weekend. And we were he wondering. He did not win. He did not win. The, Is that the, the trivia question? No. Did I get it, it right? He did not win. Nope. Not yet. But you're, all, was you're building some by the positive guy. momentum. Okay. Uh, Jeremy Horn boxed on this card. He did win. Um, now, in going back through Jeremy Horn's record, it's even though I was around and watching MMA for a lot of it, it's still kind of stunning some of the names that Jeremy Horn went up against and beat a lot of them. For instance, I had totally forgotten that he beat Chael Sonnen three times, okay. which is kind of amazing to me. Now, I'm going to give you three names. Two of them, Jeremy Horn did fight. One of them, he didn't. And you, you Chad Dundas, your job is to tell me which one is not in Jeremy Horn's resume. Okay, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna look now. I, I have a question though. Are these all? They're all real fighters. Yes, you, that okay. much will be very clear. The only right. thing I have to decide is whether or not Jeremy Horn fought these people. Which one didn't he fight? Okay. Okay. I'm prepared. Number one, Antonio Rodrigo Nogueira. Number two, Igor Vovchanchnin. Number three, Randy Couture. Which one didn't Jeremy Horn fight? He did not fight Shogun Hua. And no one said Shogun Hua. Wait, what was the first one? Antonio Rodrigo Noguera. Oh, okay, Roger Nog. He didn't fight him. It would be Roddy Nog, and he did fight him. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, I feel like I did well. You're, you want to take a stab? Still, there's still two on the board. You got a 50-50 uh, shot. Did not fight Vav Chanchin. Did not fight Vav Chanchin. Okay. Did fight Randy Couture. A side note that didn't fit into the story, talking to Monty Cox, is he was like, I kind of cost him that one against Randy Couture because it was in rings, and they used to do a thing where like, you know, they'd do a couple rounds, and then whoever won, if it was a draw after that, whoever won like the last of the two rounds, they'd just be like, okay, that guy won. And I told them at a previous event, I was like, well, you can't do it that way. You got to have another round. You got to have like a tiebreaker round. Uh, and then the very next event, he brought Jeremy Horn there, who had a, the draw after a couple rounds with Randy Couture and would have won, except they were like, hey, we're going to do your thing. Like, thanks for the good idea. Now there's another round. And then Randy Couture beat him. Hmm. I still, I think the best approach was choosing a guy who was not offered on the list. It's a, it's a cagey move on your part. I'll give you that. Did Jeremy Horn fight Shogun Hua at any time? Maybe he did. If he didn't, know. I'm going to go ahead and claim victory. I'm going to say I got it right. So you look that up. We'll figure it out for next time. Okay. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. Look it up real quick. Did he okay. fight, did I fight did Shogun happen to see, though, and this is one that I'm going to look at later. Jeremy Horn was in this tournament, right? You're going to lose it when I tell you. The tournament was like in Denver and like 2003. Never heard of this tournament before. It includes Jeremy Horn, Chael Sonnen, Shogun Hua, Forrest Griffin, 
and Babalusco Brawl, and I believe Trevor Franklin. Wow. Star yeah. Two True or false, Jeremy Horn knocked out Forrest Griffin at that event, Chad. Uh, false. True. It's actually he knocked true. out Forrest Griffin? He knocked did out he Forrest Griffin. Did he fight Shogun Ua, though? Did he fight Shogun Ua? I don't think he did fight Shogun Ua. See, I was right. I was right all along. If that's what you want to tell yourself. <laughs>